0: Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast-off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycle of stuff. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And today I'm going first, I'm going to talk about the Principality of Sealand and the micronations. Yes. So do you know anything about Sealand?
1: Nothing, but you mentioned it the last episode, so I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah.
0: So this is not to be confused with Sea Lab 2021, which is a great cartoon. This has nothing to do with that. So our story begins uh, in Britain in World War II. So the Luftwaffe, the um, German Air Force, basically was bombing the crud out of England And so England was like, well, we need something to defend our sea forts because it's really hard to defend our ports along the coast. So they started building these sea forts. They're like, they almost look like oil platforms. They're basically big concrete cylinders in the ground that are hollow and on it is a platform with uh, anti-aircraft guns. And so there are nine were planned and only seven were built and one of them. Called Fort Ruffs was built in 1942 and was used until 1956. And although it's interesting to begin with that it was like a little platform with anti-aircraft guns seven miles out in the North Sea off the coast of England, its story gets more interesting. So As you'll recall, our pirate radio episode, and if you haven't listened to it, you totally should, because this kind of delves a little bit into it, too. So it was just like the Netherlands. It was pretty hard to get a broadcasting license. The BBC also did not cater to pop and rock music fans. So there were quite a few pirate radio stations, and many were in ships off the North Sea. So you can, if you listen to that episode, you'll remember Radio Veronica and Radio Caroline. They were in the North Sea. So Mm -hmm. there was already a pirate radio station at Ruff's Tower when Roy Bates, a veteran of World War II, took it over and he kicked the radio station out. So Roy's (laughs) an interesting guy. He originally was in a ship. he had Radio Essex. It was his pirate radio station, which is pretty popular. And he was kicked off of Knock John Tower, which is another one of these sea forts, but it was a really closer inland to the UK. So he was kicked off of it. So he saw that there were there was also Fort Rough, so he's like, hey, you know what, I'm going to go over to Fort Ruff's because it's farther out. It's not in the UK territorial waters. And so he went over there originally to start restart his pirate radio station. But what he did instead in 1967, he claimed it as a principality of Sealand. He claimed it was his own country and that he was the prince of Sealand and his wife okay. was the princess. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> So he, he stayed there for a number of years, uh, the Bates did. He actually lived there on the platform and claimed it as its own country. When he was hauled into court because he fired warning shots at British ships trying to come and say, you can't have this, the court actually ruled that the U.K. had no jurisdiction there because it was in international waters. So, Yeah. So this lends the credence to his claim that it's his own country. So Uh he's in international waters. He's claimed this platform. He says this is the principality of Sealand. And you can't do anything about it. And they couldn't.
1: (laughs) There is a shocking amount of actual piracy in pirate radios. Yes! Isn't it amazing? I... It's unexpectedly... On, on brand.
0: So this is funny that you mentioned this because do you remember Radio Caroline and how nice they were to Radio Veronica? Yeah. They tried to take over Fort Ruff's.
1: <laughs> wow. So it's, it's there's factionalism in the pirate radio piracy.
0: Yes. So the DJ from Radio Caroline tried to storm Sealand in 1967 but the Bates who were staying on the Ruff's Tower, Fort Ruff's, we're able to get rid of them by throwing gasoline bombs at them. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so the towers are interesting, as I've described them a little bit, but there is no way for you to get up on them, and that is intentional as a as a fort, basically. There's no platform. There's nothing to tie your boat to. So mm-hmm. if you stand up on the top, you can just throw bombs down at, at 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 ships they have nothing to tie their boats to the only way you can get onto the deck is either by a swing like it's a swing on a winch or by helicopter and roping down
1: it's pretty amazing spy novel stuff here i
0: know it's funny so i'm gonna i'm gonna go into the sealand rebel government now so this is another attempted coup this is crazy So August 1978 is where we are now. So Achenbacher, um, he's a German who is a diamond dealer. He was named the foreign minister of Sealand in 1975 because he was a friend of Roy Bates and he kind of hung out with them. Um, They sent Roy Bates on a bogus trip to Austria to set up with people um, who wanted to make Sealand into a luxury resort. And Bates was kind of like, no, I don't think that's a good thing. So using a helicopter and guns, Achenbacher uh, sent his attorney, Gernot Putz, and a couple of Dutch people to take over the platform. So now Bates is off on his trip to Austria. Joan, his wife, is in England doing whatever she was doing. So Michael, who is about 20, their son, Prince Michael, if you will, Mm -hmm. he's alone on the platform. So Michael tries to um, stop the coup from happening with some guns, but they catch him and put him in the brig on the platform because there used to be a military platform, so there was a brig. And so they keep Michael in the brig for weeks. And so Roy and Joan are trying to do something about the whole coup and rescue their son, but they eventually set Prince Michael free and sent them back to their parents by fishing boat. So eventually Roy, Michael, his son, and some friends were able to stop the rebellion and take back Sealand by using a borrowed helicopter and guns. So they took back Sealand.
1: How so has they... there not been a movie about this?
0: I know, it's pretty fantastic. So they released all the rebels except for the lawyer Putz, who they put in the brig on Sealand, and they kept him there for weeks and made him clean toilets, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and saying he needed to, he, and so the Ger- Germany got involved and they sent a diplomat and they said, look, you need to release him. He's a German citizen. You need, you know, you can't keep him in the brig. And they said, well, we can't release him until he pays his fine for his part in the coup attempt. <laughs> so eventually, and Germany couldn't do anything about it because they were in international waters. So they eventually released this guy after he gave the Bates family 75,000 Deutschmarks. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, so he had to pay his fines for the coup.
1: (laughs) You have been teaching us a tremendous amount about maritime law.
0: I know, and it's crazy.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: So, more Interesting, strange things have happened on Sealand. So in 1977, there was the case of the bogus passports. So let me start by saying that Sealand, the royal family of Sealand, which is the Bates family, have only ever issued 300 official Sealand passports. (laughs) (laughs) Only 300. Only 300. So with that said, in 1977, the Bates got a call from the FBI Because the person who killed Gianni Versace, and this is crazy how this is, all related, I think his name was Andrew Cunanan?
1: Yes, Andrew Cunanan. I am very interested in this story. There's a great book. I can't remember what it's called. It's like Vulgar Desires or something like that. Okay. And it's about Andrew Cunanan.
0: He was obsessed with Gianni Versace, right?
1: Sort of, yeah. It was He was obsessed with a lot of things and just really wanted to appear hip and wealthy, I guess. It was involved.
0: Okay. So, Cunanan committed suicide on a boat that was not owned by him. It was owned by another guy. Right. The guy that owned the boat, they found a bunch of Sealand passports and forged diplomatic plates from Sealand. So, apparently, he used... Diplomatic plates that he forged from Sealand to claim that he had diplomatic immunity.
1: <laughs> diplomatic plates for a place that has zero vehicles. Yeah. Because you literally can't get a vehicle of any kind. On Sealand. There, except a helicopter.
0: But he was claiming in the States he had diplomatic immunity. Right. So this whole story led to finding over 400 thousand forged passports that were tied to a drug smuggling ring and Russian arms dealers who had apparently been using them for diplomatic uh, immunity and were using them fraudulently. And so when they contacted the Bates family, the Bates family was like, w- no, we've only ever issued 300 official Sealand passports and we have no idea what the deal is with them. So this... This crazy story that started with Gianni Versace ended in like Russian arms dealers and drug smugglers and forged passports and diplomatic plates from (laughs) Sealand.
1: That's um. How is there not a movie about this?
0: I know it's pretty unreal. You
1: could do a whole podcast about Sealand.
0: Yeah. It's pretty interesting. And if you contact the Bates family, so Roy and Joan are now deceased. Michael oh. is still alive. He's in his 60s. And his son, James, Prince James, if you will. he I will. He, yeah. My, Prince Michael and Prince James um, are both involved in the Sealand, in, in keeping Sealand up. Um, but, yeah, you can actually contact them and... If they feel like it, we'll let you come visit, but they don't often feel like it.
1: <laughs> I don't blame them.
0: So I'm going to yes. go into more recent history of what's going on with Sealand because Sealand yes. is fascinating. So as of 2000, there was a, I, I followed a Wired article that was talking about an internet startup called Haven Co. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. No. Their goal was to set up a server farm at Network Hub for companies that wanted to be outside of the purview of government reg- regulations. So mm. they thought it was a good fit. International Waters, Server Farm, Network Hub, don't want to be like looked at by the government. And appear, But apparently this idea kind of never got off the ground. It had a lot of – they got a lot of money. They got a lot of internet startup cash, internet money. But mm. it never went anywhere because running – The internet out kind of fell through because you have to actually run a cable line. They rely on satellite out there. Um, It just never got off the ground. They had all these crazy plans. Like they wanted to have the server farms in nitrogen-only atmospheres and the concrete legs of the uh, structure, but it just never happened. And the Bates family separated ways with these people after like a year or so. Mm -hmm. The structure itself is aging. Like there's someone living in it and the, the baits lived in it pretty frequently, but in order to get supplies out there, you have to wait for like a weekly transport from the shore. And in, in rough seas, you might be SOL.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a lighthouse almost.
0: Exactly. It's It's like an inverse. It's an inverse lighthouse in that the legs, each of them are hollow and that's where the rooms are. So there's a house up top. Um, there's like a uh, – it's not a house. It's like a structure. It's a building up top. Uh-huh. And then the legs themselves that are into the uh, ocean, they're, so they're, they go 24, 24 feet down. And those actually – there's rooms in them and a, and a staircase that goes down. So it's almost like a weird little – corn silo <laughs>
1: yeah. in the yeah, ground it just... oh it's creepy yeah ooh. and in the ocean and ooh, I don't I don't care for that one one bit
0: <laughs> <laughs> so there was also a mention that I followed that didn't really seem to come to fruition either Pirate Bay because of stricter regulations in Sweden um, they tried to buy sea land but that didn't happen either mm-hmm so where is Sealand now? It's still there. Um, a lot of people credit the fact that the Bates family never really antagonized anyone in the UK, or and that's why they're still there, and that's why they're kind of allowed to exist. Mm-hmm. In 1987, I believe the UK, the the UK territorial waters actually expanded to include Sealand. So they were in international waters for a while, and now they're technically not, but mm-hmm. they're they're pretty much left alone at this point. There was a fire re- not recently, years ago, and they actually were saved by someone on a helicopter. So they get services like if something really bad's going down, like there someone's going to come out and save them, but they're left alone otherwise and that's probably mm-hmm. because they haven't caused much trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it would be it would be too expensive to try to fix what isn't really a problem, I guess.
0: Right, right. So, if you want to visit Sealand, if you want to purchase a royal title or get yourself citizenship, you can buy it on their website at sealandgov.org. Don't expect a passport. I don't think they're going to be issuing any any anymore. <laughs> And much, actually, they're, go ahead. How much does it cost? It's It ranges from $40 to $999, depending on the title that you want.
1: That's like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to like make that a, a Patreon goal or something of like, one of us becomes a, a dual citizen of the U.S. and sea land. <laughs> If we get 100 patrons, one of us will go through that process.
0: So the, their website and their online titles and products are their main driver of their GDP of Sealand, which is like $600,000 is what one number I saw, which is not jump change. I mean, it's helping yeah. keep the place running. Sealand also has its own Stamps Coins a constitution, and you can read the Sealand news online. So you're interested. You can go to their website and, and see their stamps, their coins, their constitution. Buy a royal title for yourself if you want to be a duke or a duchess or, you know, whatever. So I 20, do. Yeah, 2017 was their 50th anniversary. Roy and Joan, as I said, are dead. Um, Michael is, is, an, is in his 60s. He lives on the mainland. He lives on the coast of uh, Britain. He seems he he's. Kind of plans to keep Sealand in the family. His son James is pretty involved, and the only person now that lives there is a guard named Michael Barrington. He's the only one that lives there, and he's also in his 60s. the The structure is it's not failing. I mean, it's steel and concrete. It's still there. The dude's still living there, but it's it's still Sealand. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's often called the smallest country, but it's not really recognized as its own country. And this is interesting. So I following this, I was like, okay, well, what makes a country a country? So I, I followed this line of reasoning to a video that I watched about what is involved in becoming a micronation. So the video itself, Was at MicroCon. It was like a Micronations conference of people that have Micronations. You should totally watch it. There. Oh, my gosh. Some of these people are hilarious. So there's about... The number is all over the place. But there's about 500-ish Micronations at any time. Right on. And so they... They go by the Montevideo Convention of Rights and Duties of States to declare themselves um, micronations, to declare themselves independent nations. Um, and that was in 1933. And it seems to really be enacted for indigenous peoples of the world so that indigenous mm-hmm. peoples of the world can be their own nations. And it codifies the declarative theory of state law, statehood as a part of it in international law. So, the declarative theory of statehood is that Article 1 states the state as a person of international law should possess the following qualifications A, a permanent population, B, a defined territory, C, a government, and D, capacity to enter into relationships with other states. So, by this, Sealand is itself a state it's its own country it's a mm-hmm. micronation so that's what a lot of these micronations go off of is this declarative theory of statehood other people are like no 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 <laughs> you cannot be a nation if you are not recognized by other nations Meh. <laughs> yeah So Sealand claimed that they were recognized by other nations, say Germany, Mm -hmm. when Germany sent a diplomat that were like, you know what, we're a state because Germany came and they realized they couldn't do anything. And the UK had no jurisdiction in the international waters on Sealand. Right. Like, well, we're a nation. So it's up in the air. But if you want to become your own micronation. Remember those two things, the declarative and the constitutive theory. Uh, WikiHow has a great article on how to become a micronation. <laughs> if you're interested.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you, WikiHow. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and as I mentioned, there's if, if you want to go down... A rabbit hole of micronations, by God, do it, because it is so fascinating. People are so strange and interesting. I love them. I've already mentioned sea land. There's driftwood castle um, called Ladonia. So Lars Vilks built all these weird driftwood castles out on an island off the coast of, I'm going to say the Netherlands, I might be wrong. They're really fascinating, and the Netherlands were like, no, You can't build those here. And he's like, yes, I can. This is an island. This isn't international waters. He's claimed himself as a micronation of basically castles built out of driftwood. Then there's Molossia, which is another famous one that is located in Nevada. And he's truly a fascinating person, the dictator of Molossia. He's got a whole story and everything. So, yeah, check him out. There's... 500 ish, and it seems like they pop up all the time.
1: That's yes. fabulous.
0: Yeah. And so, I love it. This led me into seasteading. And apparently, it was Sea Land has inspired seasteading, which is basically the practice. If you've ever seen the movie Water World, yeah, with Kevin Costner, and he's got gills and all that stuff. Yeah. So seasteading is taking that idea and promoting the creation of floating cities as a solution to pressing problems like sea levels, overpopulation, governance by poor governance by bad countries that are hard to live in, etc. And that was started by Patrick Friedman and the major investor is Peter Thiel. So Their website is fascinating. They talk about all these cool ways they want to live out on the ocean. I think that's great. Go for it. The ocean is terrifying to me. There's no way I would want to live out on the ocean unless I knew, like, I was not going to be killed by the waves and the wind and that I would be able to get to the hospital quickly enough. But, you know what? You do you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that is all. Sealand, micronations, and sea studying. Check them out. It's a good time.
1: Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so cool.
0: Yeah. Sea. I don't. Uh,
1: I don't want to do it, but I want to learn more about it.
0: Yeah, it's really. And there's actually a book. Um, uh, one of the major articles that I really enjoyed because the information was everywhere about Sealand. It was like information changed from one. Uh, article to the other so I have like 15 articles I went back and forth between and one of the articles was written by a guy um, the journalist and he actually wrote a book called Outlaw Ocean which I totally intend to read
1: that's a such a good title
0: yeah definitely oh man Outlaw Ocean
1: we should have a book club
0: yeah totally that would be fun I tried to put books on our website, but I kind of fell off, but I'll put Outlaw Ocean on there now, just like books that you can read, and it has affiliate links on it for our Amazon in case you want to give some change back to us for your purchases. Yeah. It's on our website.
1: Where does a podcast.com.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you talking about, Emily.
1: A totally different topic. Uh, Great. I am talking about nuclear satellites and where did they go?
0: Ooh, I almost talked about nuclear sub, sub submarines.
1: Really? That's so yeah. funny. Yeah. And nuclear satellites are sometimes used to talk to submarines. So oh. Not all satellites are nuclear powered. Why would you want a nuclear powered satellite? When... The USSR and the United States were in sort of the space race of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Solar panels at that point were too big to allow low Earth orbit, which was critical for radar communication between satellites and the ground. And radar communication between satellites and the ground was used for spy satellites. So, yeah. So nuclear reactor-driven satellites were used... And in the 1980s, two higher orbiting nuclear satellites were also launched by the Soviet Union. Now, there are also nuclear-powered probes. There are nuclear-powered space rovers. And I'm not going to get into those because I'd like to do a separate episode about where space probes and space rovers go. This is specifically satellites floating around the Earth. Not floating per se, but orbiting around the Earth. And either in low Earth orbit or high Earth orbit. Nuclear power was often used in space. Oh, I just said that.
0: (laughs) I do Uh, that all the time. I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) Because I'm like reading my notes. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I already said that.
1: So because I am not a nuclear physicist... I don't know if you need that, Sarah, since I do talk about nuclear power an awful lot. I mean,
0: you're pretty you're pretty smart. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have doubted it. If you were like, oh, I'm also a nuclear physicist, I'd be like, oh, okay.
1: I'm not, but I have okay. listened to several <laughs> nuclear physicists speak. So I know enough about it to know that I'm not going to be able to effectively get into the nitty gritty of different nuclear power sources and their different uses for different reasons. One of the reasons that we would use nuclear power for off-earth projects is it has a real value in providing self-generating power, but it's also super hazardous. And so you can do you can gain power to power satellites or probes or rovers two different ways from nu- uh, nuclear reactions or decay. One is the heat generated by nuclear decay is captured to generate power. Because as a uh, nuclear, as a, as a um, an isotope, and I, I go into isotopes a bit in the Chernobyl fallout episode. And I think you do a little bit in the uh, nuclear test site episode.
0: Uh, Not too much, but just a little bit, just so we have an understanding of you know, why it's
1: dangerous to be yeah, there. Yeah, and I, I'm, again, I don't go in even into, like, beginning level physics classes. But anyway, I you know, an isotope as it stabilizes itself by giving off electrons that generates heat. So you can capture that and use it to create power or you can utilize a nuclear reactor where a critical nuclear reaction is taking place. It's uh, fission reaction, I believe, and we don't use fusion. Do we use fusion and not fission? Crap.
0: We use f-
1: fusion. Did I have that backward? Let me let me check that wait, wait, real wait. quick.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Gosh, I, I think said it.
0: It's, I think it's fission because don't we split them?
1: I think we can't split them yet. Okay. No, fusion is proposed.
0: Right. We use fission.
1: Okay, I was right. Hey, good for me. I'm going to cut all this out.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured you would.
1: I'll put it in on the end as a blooper. <laughs> so fission reactors use nuclear, I'll just say nuclear reactions because getting nu- into the nitty gritty of this. Yeah, nuclear reactions. But getting into the nitty gritty of this is not the point of talking about where nuclear satellites go, but nuclear reactors create typically more power than the nuclear power that involves capturing heat from radioactive decay so nuclear satellites have been used by the soviet union and the united states and then china has used nuclear power on rovers so i'm only going to talk about the soviet union and the united states in this because that's who we know has used nuclear power in satellites. Now, what we don't know is what we don't know. And I'll leave that as that. Exactly. (laughs) So I'm gonna start with the Soviet Union and how Soviet Union satellites were supposed to work. Uh, Nuclear cores of the satellites in low earth orbit were supposed to be ejected into high earth orbit, which is considered a disposal orbit. The remaining components hang out in low Earth orbit and presumably burn up on re-entry. All satellites are a major source of space junk, including these nuclear ones. And it was kind of assumed that the satellites would stay in high Earth orbit for around 500-ish years. There are a lot of assumptions about how long space junk will stay in space, and especially in high Earth orbit. But you notice this is taking place in the 1960s, and there's an assumption that we'll stay in high Earth orbit for 500 years. The United States assumed that it would be 4,000 years. Uh, neither That's... of us are going to be around anywhere, anywhere between 100 years after these launch and 500 years. So you can just say what you want, and who's going to get you in trouble for it if you're dead by the time it crashes back in Earth, <laughs> right?
0: That's a huge range, 504,000.
1: And I would bet al- there's plenty of math involved in those assum- assumption numbers. So I am not So gonna- <laughs> I'm not going to refute the math behind them because I don't know it and I doubt I could understand it if I knew it. But I'm just saying, if you're going to assume that it's going to be multiple human lifespans after the launch, I mean, it's just kind of conveniently broad. Anyway. So here's how some some of the Soviet satellites worked great. That's exactly how they worked. They worked the way they were expected to. Some did not. So let's go into the ones that didn't quite do what they were supposed to. In 1972, a reactor fell into the Pacific Ocean north of Japan just after launch. It was never oh. retrieved, and there was radiation detected later on in the waters. So it's assumed that it leaked.
0: We're just trying to make Godzilla. I mean, that's really I what mean, it is.
1: I mean, you're not wrong. So,
0: Japan is just trying to make some Godzilla.
1: <laughs> I guess. Uh, in 1970, a reactor failed in a satellite. And so the whole thing, satellite and reactor, moved into high Earth orbit. One actually got flung out of Earth's orbit. So it's just out in space going somewhere. There's How a lot that of and that's crazy. I don't know. I again, that I guarantee there's a lot of math involved. Right. And then a later satellite failed to boost its reactor to high earth orbit, but it did boost it pretty close. It was like 80 miles short, but it was still in pretty high low earth orbit, I guess. <laughs> it's <laughs> I mean, there's not much that can be done. The you know, the reactor is most uh, presumably shut down remotely and then launched into high earth orbit. It goes where it goes. What are you going to do? You can't go like f- find a, a space tow truck and yank it into higher earth orbit. We don't really, the atmosphere of the earth is so big. It's, it's staggering to me that we can pinpoint anything in it other than like a cloud. That's pretty close to the ground near us. So <laughs> I, It amazes me a lot of times what we can pinpoint as humans because our understanding of very vast systems can be grasped by very limited brains, like human brains, including my own. I'm not trying to be smart about people. Anyway, (laughs) the reason I am actually covering this topic is because someone mentioned on Twitter Cosmos 954 and... So, I started looking into Cosmos 954. I was going to do just an episode on this satellite, but I ended up doing it on all nuclear satellites because the story of Cosmos 954 is pretty straightforward. It just kind of sucks. So, January 1978, a nuclear reactor did not separate properly from Cosmos 954, didn't make it to high Earth orbit. Its orbit decayed enough that it fell back to Earth. USSR initially claimed it burned up on re entry, but in fact, it merely broke up in the atmosphere. And it landed across the Northwest Territories, what is now Nunavut, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. It was sort of a 370-mile trail of radioactive space junk. Oh. There was a joint Canadian and American recovery effort called Operation Morning Light over 48,000 square miles during 1978 the whole year basically it took an entire year to recover 12 large pieces 11 of which were radioactive and one of which if you had spent a lot of time standing next to it could give you a lethal dose dose of radiation oh no yeah only around one percent of the fuel was found oh and the other fuel could be in two different places one is dispersed throughout the atmosphere, which is Yay. not not awesome, no, uh, but it is at least equal opportunity. Uh, and then <laughs> the other is that it could be somewhere in Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Like it's not is your Canada's enormous and not very densely populated north of I don't know within like probably fifty miles of the border. So there could be plenty of stuff out there that humans cannot find. It's a well-known component of Yellowknife, Northwest Territories lore. And apparently, per international treaty, damage caused by objects sent into space on the ground is the liability of the launcher of the object that was sent into space.
0: Oh. So, can-
1: yeah. Canada build the USSR 6 million for 6 million dollars for the uh the damage and the recovery efforts and all that and the USSR eventually paid them 3 million. So
0: I was going to say did they pay them anything because they went bankrupt.
1: <laughs> yeah, surprisingly they did. It must have happened before 1989 or okay. 1991, you know. <laughs> so Cosmos 1402 In 1982, a reactor failed to make it to high-Earth orbit, and its orbit decayed enough to fall back to Earth. It eventually fell into the Atlantic in 1983, and it is, so it's assumed that the reactor burned up upon reentry fully. And this is sort of an accepted versus, you know, Cosmos 954. And that the radioactivity was dispersed throughout the atmosphere. Uh, Whether or not that's safe, I think this is another, what are you going to do about it? Uh, so, uranium was detected in, r- in rain at Fayetteville, Arkansas for months after the incident, and it's assumed that at least 44 kilos, which is almost 100 pounds of uranium dispersed through the stratosphere after the incident.
0: Oh, dear.
1: <laughs> this incident specifically eventually resulted in the cessation of nuclear reactor power satellites uh, for the USSR because the issues were ongoing. And then let's get (laughs) (laughs) into yeah.
0: That was a soap uh, of wisdom there.
1: (laughs) Right, and we'll get into the U.S.'s infinite wisdom next. Uh, I'll talk about two more projects for the USSR, and then we'll talk about the United States. Uh, I'm gonna. We'll get into (laughs) it. So, Topaz reactors. There were two of these sent into high Earth orbit. These were on satellites. And they leaked in high Earth orbit in the 90s due to damage. The gamma radiation from them was detected by other satellites. And d- it was determined to be, it had to be the Topaz reactors. It couldn't be gamma radiation from the Earth because of the amount there was. And it couldn't be from outer space. It, you know, it was determined it had to be these two reactors. One satellite holding the reactor was destroyed. And the other is what's called parked in high Earth orbit. So I think it's just out there. Now, Topaz reactors were sort of a joint effort in that the USSR created them, but then some of them were sent to the US as models to be ground tested. And different nations, including the United States, were involved with the ground test, and they were interested in them. But they were not known to be adopted for broad use by anywhere, including the Soviet Union. And then it was actually really difficult to give the models back to the USSR, because the U.S. could not legally export nuclear-powered items to the USSR. So the the USSR gave us these things that could be nuclear-powered, and then we weren't legally allowed to give them back. (laughs) (laughs) It took a month to resolve, and the models did go back to the USSR. But that project kind of... Uh, After the two were launched and one got destroyed and the other's not in great shape, uh, they they were just done. So, those are the major stories of USSR nuclear satellites. Let's go to U.S. nuclear satellites. Uh, Nuclear power on satellites was under the umbrella of the SNAP program, not the what's now known as the SNAP program, which is, was previously known as Food Stamps. but I was going to say, what? <laughs> yeah, it's acronyms on acronyms. Uh, Systems for Nuclear Auxiliary Power. And odd-numbered SNAP engines used the heat of radioactive decay to generate electricity. Even-numbered were nuclear reactors. A lot of SNAP engines were ground tested, and a lot of SNAP engines became part of ground features. They weren't... Intended solely to go into space, but several were used in satellites. SNAP 3 was the first one used for a space mission, and it's still out in space on satellites and was used for submarine navigation. SNAP 9, also used on transit, satellite, was also used on transit satellites similar to the SNAP 3. One failed to achieve orbit in 1964 and disintegrated, dispersing 2.2 pounds or one kilo of plutonium into the atmosphere. And most of it fell on the the southern hemisphere. Sorry, y'all. This incident in 1964 spurred putting more money into the development of photovoltaic energy in NASA. It didn't stop the SNAP program by any means, but it did push towards, hey, maybe we should just stop using nukes for things as much. Maybe we shouldn't nuke, like, the southern hemisphere. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> God. So, yeah, SNAP-19 was used on the Nimbus-B satellite, which was a robotic satellite for weather data. The first Nimbus satellite rocket failed, and the fuel fell into the Santa Barbara Channel. And then they dial- dove 300 feet underground, or under underwater, underground. <laughs> they dove 300 feet underwater and recovered the fuel. Oh, well, that's which good. Was-
0: they recovered it.
1: Yep. And then they reused it for the Nimbus Three satellite, and it's assumed that it will be in space for four thousand years. Okay. Yeah. Again, who's gonna get the person that made that number no- or, or that determination in trouble? Nobody.
0: <laughs> the the robot future, I guess they'll. they'll yeah, our our, you
1: know. our alien overlords. <laughs> <laughs> So, as I said, even numbered snaps were nuclear reactors. And these were, again, much like the Topaz reactors, not utilized a lot as far as we know. They were, and I, part of why I'm including them, there's really only one that they know is in space right now. This, this is SNAP 10A. It's in space right now. It's powering the Agena D satellite, and it'll stay up there again for around 4,000 years, it's assumed. But. The even-numbered snaps were initially tested to potentially power crewed space missions, so people, or to power missions that were sending supplies up into space, like had payloads and stuff like that. The reactors released deadly levels of radiation, and they couldn't use traditional shielding because traditional shielding is so heavy. So the shielding that they came up with was lithium hydride in a cone shape, and then putting the people... Or the payload as far as they could from the power source in, oh in the gosh. spaceship and just hoping for the best. <laughs> uh, so the shielding was made by pouring lithium hydride into a cone-shaped mold. And you could only do that a little bit at a time or the lithium hydride would crack as it cooled, which was a huge effort. And any of the cracks would prove fatal. And then there were also issues with as they were pouring this, it created like a vortex or like a void space that they then had to try to figure out how to close. So it was it was just they abandoned that idea pretty readily. Oh, and lithium hydride was explosive when exposed to oxygen and moisture.
0: Yeah, I think we learned that with this, uh, the Samsung galaxies, right? Wasn't that? Yeah. Lithium hydride
1: is. Yeah. It was so just imagine the batteries would
0: ra- randomly explode.
1: Imagine these poor astronauts who have they're probably Air Force fighter pilots or similar and they're getting to their like life's goal of going into space and they are sitting with behind them a massive fire waiting to happen and behind that fire is just a radioactive ball of death. <laughs> you know <laughs> so that plan was abandoned
0: i wonder why
1: <laughs> and that's where nuclear satellites go so some of them are discontinued in use some of them are tried out and some of them dump nuclear waste all over canada or into the atmosphere all over all of us
0: holy cow i like radioactive ball of death i think that should be a song in In one of my albums, like radioactive ball of death.
1: It's all yours.
0: (laughs) It'll will be accompanied on the ukulele.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love songs like that where the music is really cheerful and the subject is really not.
0: Well, that, you know, that's pretty much my personality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever heard the song Pentagram by the band Cake? Uh no, I'll send it to you. It's this really peppy country western type feel, and then it's singing about uh the downstairs neighbors of this guy in an apart, uh, presumably an apartment building, who are doing all sorts of pagan rituals and using the, like, the ashes of dead babies and things like that. So oh, <laughs> it's a great song. I really love that song. Yeah.
0: Listen to it, that's funny. Go to our website, where does a podcast.com. Emily's in the process of setting up a Patreon, so keep on the lookout for that. And you can fi- always find us on Twitter at Where Does It Pod One, Instagram at Where Does It Podcast, and Email at Where Does A Podcast at Gmail dot com.